0: Welcome, everyone, to the Brandon Adams Podcast. This is episode 30. I have with me Tom Dwan and Nate Silver.
1: Hey, guys. Hey, audience.
0: (laughs) Very excited to learn that on this podcast, we're going to be talking about not only Nate's new book, but also possibly a little cryptocurrency, which is known to to 10x any audience size. So, Nate, to summarize the conversation uh, before we went on, you had a book, The Signal and the Noise, which sold a huge number of copies. Are you able to tell us roughly how many copies that, that book sold?
1: I think it's in the um, mid six figures, which for which for a book is a lot. Like books, if you sell like 10,000 books, then that um, that's actually kind of a lot, right? So if you're selling in the six figures, then, then the publisher is usually very happy about that. So that was good.
0: The Signal and the Noise is a modern classic I I take it that you were given a lot of uh, a lot of freedom to basically pursue whatever you wanted. You had a chapter on earthquakes. You you had a lot of fascinating new material in there. Um, how long did it take you to write the Signal and the Noise? All in. So it took
1: about four years, out of which I'd say probably a quarter of my bandwidth was spent on the book. Right. So like. It took about a year's worth of work, I'd say. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a book is a hard thing to do. And it's something that you kind of get, your mind gets totally absorbed in. But the thing is, like, I need, like, big projects to work on or I kind of go kind of stir crazy, right? And usually it's like an election model I'm building or an election itself. But, like, my brain needs, like, something to kind of, it's goal-driven, I think. Or I just kind of, I mean, you, you know, I'll sleep well and exercise more, that stuff's good, but like, but it's just kind of the way I function. So, um, but no, so this, um, I guess I can't formally quite announce this new book yet because we haven't signed the contract yet, but I've been encouraged, um, had encouraging conversations with my agent, my publisher and have a strong inkling for the direction I want to go with the with the second book here.
2: So I guess we maybe can't talk about the specifics on the part that's going to- Well, be- I mean,
1: I, at this point, at this point, I guess we're kind of like, but like, um, I was just going
2: to tease it and say what I've heard. I hope you end up writing the book you told. Yeah, me why don't you say right. what you heard? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but it would be a book that would cover a lot of the subjects that people who listen to this podcast are interested in. Um, so you know, poker, sports betting. I mean, it basically be a book about gambling and risk, um, which is a big spectrum of things. Especially, you're defining gambling rather broadly, right, saying gambling is not just things that happen in a casino, but also um, a lot of investment, a lot of trading is at least gambling adjacent, Um, maybe looking at things like how did people handle the COVID pandemic, clearly like risk communication, risk (laughs) management, right, is kind of a challenge for people society-wide, but yeah, it's like one of these topics where when you start to think about it, it runs really deep, right, like how much of risk is embedded in capitalism how much does it vary among different societies and stuff like that right so it's it's all these kind of fun things that when you start on a book you start to think about do not have very many answers yet i have a whole bunch of people including the two of you that i'll want to to talk to and hit up for other contacts but um but yeah and it's also partly like um partly autobiographical in (laughs) in some ways right um you know i had um a period of time where like um i played a limit them online grinder um and like 04 through 06 and like but that's actually kind of an important part of how i was able to quit my corporate consulting job and start doing things i actually wanted to do like found 538 for example um so but i still kind of think like a poker player in a lot of ways and i think it's kind of the way that um frankly i think people in this kind of world think and i'm not quite sure what to call the world but like but it differs certainly from when you go into the world of like political journalism and you kind of feel like a fish out of water sometimes. And so it's kind of like, um, kind of like explain myself, explain, you know, what's it mean when you have a probabilistic forecast is one kind of fairly important, but, you know, limited example, but also like, you know, why, um, why do people who gamble for a living tend to be a little bit distrusting in the conventional wisdom, a little bit, contrarian at times, right? I mean, there are reasons for that having to do with, you know, you want you don't want to just accept the market price and something you're trying to look for flaws in how people think, right? Um so kind of the more I kind of um, think about myself I think about what are the idiosyncratic characteristics that I have that you kind of in the normal world people think are are either different or they don't entirely understand it kind of it comes down to a certain way of thinking that you tend to, to gain if you're if you're kind of making bets for a living, whether on poker or investments or on crypto or whatever else. That's a, that's a basic, I've now totally spoiled <laughs> any, any mystery here. The book has not been sold yet, right? It's a proposal that I, I'm working on um, that my publisher and agency I'm excited by, so yeah.
0: I have an idea for your book launch. I need to talk to your publisher. Okay. For your, bu- for your book launch, it's sort of like the promo for a, for a heavyweight title fight. We need to get you in a debate with Nassim, Nassim Talib, where you guys actually come to blows.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it's because, I mean, part of, I guess, ironically, is part of what the book is going to talk about is kind of skin in the game, right? I don't know if he kind of considers me someone who has skin in the game. I don't know if he actually knows that, like I kind of what my background was and stuff like that. But like, um, but it is going to make a distinction, I think, between like people who actually have to, you know, develop are, you know, are playing poker or are kind of making bets for themselves, right? And are kind of making decisions for themselves versus like maybe a more academic statistics background, right? Because like in the election realm, I'll sometimes get in like, um, like little fights and rivalries with people who are trying to build election models and have like not actually ever like gambled for a living. <laughs> um, and you just kind of learn like a lot of street smarts. If you do like actually kind of have to back your, your, Bet with your own money. I know that sounds stupid and it is kind of getting repetitive with like skin in the game, right? But like, um, you know, you develop a very kind of practical sense of estimation. You get a very practical sense of like, here is something in the model that like I just think kind of looks wrong and I'm not going to be super duper idealistic about kind of, I don't know. But you recognize that like kind of model building is like an inexact kind of dirty science. In a way, um, but you also kind of think deeply about kind of the underlying mathematics behind it. And
2: I don't know, does that make any sense? It does. It does to me. Yeah. So, so if you zoom out, like, and try to look at kind of a lot of academia, a lot of a lot of the financial world that's not trading dependent, I think uh, you know a lot of the institutions in the world don't really value guessing. That much academia Mm -hmm. more than most even and 20 or 30 years ago i think that was pretty reasonable we were still kind of trying to figure everything out um but effectively now if you zoom out and look at most fields computers are just better than people in most areas other than error checking and guessing yeah and i think that a lot of times people who took a lot of wagers that were consequential for example poker um where they got to see results they started having a better ability to guess than a lot of other people meaning in poker you might have 50 or 100 guesses throughout the day and so one thing i might have said this on your podcast brandon i don't know but i don't know one thing i've like told a bunch of people when they asked me about poker is basically if you went to one of the higher games in a casino one of the decent sized games online and you asked someone if they made any mistakes in the last few hours, a lot of people would say no. But if you went to the highest game in the casino, the highest games online, people would say yeah. they made, you know, five mistakes in the last four hours kind of thing. Cause yeah. they're, they're more, they're guessing at like, oh, wait, maybe I could have figured out that I shouldn't have done this. Cause this guy's making this mistake. And I think that's a skill that uh, is that, that was, Uh, not valued as much as maybe it could have, should have been, whatever, the last few decades. But as computers have gotten better and better at replacing humans in a lot of areas, I think that's becoming more and more important. You know, basically, if you're not either prioritizing, guessing, or error catching, like, or you're an athlete or something, what's to stop a computer coming for your job in the next few decades?
1: No, Uh, and I think to, like, to study, like, I mean, I'm sure, Tom, that you are looking at
2: solvers a lot or, or not as much, but um... I mean, I, I don't look at them as much as most poker players um, partly because I'm not generally not trying to focus on the games where everyone's using solvers already. Cause then it's yeah. not as fun, not as much money. Um, but yeah, you still, still need to some um, to me, the area I think is more interesting currently to look at for this is sports that basically yeah. in sports, you used to have the, you know, a handicapper, but they still needed a model and the model was maybe 10 or 20% of the problem. Now you have the models are maybe 80 or 90% of the problem, but you still do need people we're yeah, looking and sometimes saying, Hmm, we're missing a lot of these. We don't really know why, but maybe it's this, you know, and COVID was a great example of that, yeah. that a lot of people's models flailed at first, you know, cause we were just living in a different world from a, sports gambling perspective than we had been for the last few decades of, you know, it was the first pandemic.
1: No, I think people don't, it's kind of the 80, 20 heuristic, right? We kind of like 80% of the way there with your model, but the, the remaining 20% is really quite um, important, right? Um, to say like, when is something clearly outside the bounds of bounds of the model, right? Like in our election forecast for 2020, um, you know, my view was that there was kind of more uncertainty because of COVID. Um, and there were kind of various strategies for trying to quantify that and kind of, um, bake that into the model, but like a, you know, a global pandemic that we haven't seen for a hundred years, which directly affects the mechanics of how you would vote, for example, um, seemed outside of the scope of a model trained on election data over the past 40 years or whatever. Right. And so kind of having that, having that judgment, um, you know, you know, knowing when a bet that your model recommends reflects like, a a you know, faulty input, right? That can happen like a a fair bit, Um, you know, just kind of knowing because you can also obviously overdo it. I mean, you want to develop like good heuristics and you want to follow them most of the time. But yeah, I mean, um, I mean, there's a lot I could talk about with like, (laughs) with like COVID policy. Right. But like one thing that's been weird about that is like trying to create approximations that are supposed to work for everyone when people have like kind of vastly different, risk tolerances and different priorities and stuff like that right that's all that's all different story but no i mean like um this is kind of the skin of the game (laughs) stuff i think right it's like when can you kind of catch that um that mistake that you're making also like kind of you know what parts of the problem are rewarding if you spend more time on them and which ones aren't right i mean sometimes i'm building a model i'll get like obsessed with some like elegant mathematical feature and really spend a lot of days writing better code around it, right? And you kind of stress test and you're like, this actually doesn't matter at all, right? Makes it probably like 78.5 instead of 78.2. And it's kind of interesting mathematically, but like I should just put more time on aspect X, right? Um, you know, I, I'm sure if you're studying poker, some things are fairly trivial and some aren't, right? People can get very caught up in trying to um, worry about some hand they play where it's probably part of a mixed strategy anyway. Right. Um, But yeah.
2: Yeah. We're in, if you look at like sports, for example, if you have soccer where there's 11 players on the field, you don't, the model is solving (laughs) for a lot more of the answer as opposed to baseball where the pitcher is so important, you know, but Mm -hmm. even then you have more and more games where models are solving for more answers or, or a higher piece of the answer compared to something like UFC where, you know, it's a very, very high variance, quick ending one person versus one person spot. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think it's an interesting problem to think, out, think about and look at of like uh, basically these places to assess risk. And one thing I think is really of the stuff you did that I think is really interesting to talk about is 2016, how I don't really see 2016 as a significant mistake or anything that you guys made. It's like, yeah. okay, Probably in hindsight, you had the chances of Trump winning a little bit low, but you guys had it, I think, 35% or something going in. And it's kind of like, yeah, inherently, no one's going to be perfect. This was your guess. Your guess was pretty reasonable. And if you look at New York Times guess, which was like 97 or 98%, that's just objectively ridiculous. Well, And to
1: to me, the, the betting markets were at like 18%. So you would have bet under Kelly criterion actually quite a bit on Trump using our model. And so, you know, so to me, that's like an example of where obviously like, that's how I think about it, right? I thought that like, and I kind of said publicly, no one listened, right? But I kind of said like on Twitter and stuff, that I think intellectually it'd be better for our model if Trump wins, right? That'd be a better validation of the way we're doing it. Cause it was also kind of like the, the thesis that our model had was the reasons that he won, right? Because there's high correlation between different states because he's overperforming electoral college because he's, there are a lot of undecided voters and that creates more uncertainty, right? Um, so, you know, obviously kind of that experience, it was, um, I guess, not surprising to see kind of, that's not how most of the world thinks about stuff, right? But we had also gotten like, um, I know I'm like, I've been very lucky in my life, so I hate like, I sound like I'm complaining or anything, right, but like, um, we gotten like a lot of critiques before the election in 2016, for being too bullish on Trump, right? Democrats were like, no, he can't really have a 30% chance or whatever it was. It fluctuated between, you know, between almost 50 at some points and 15, and but in that range, right? And people like, just couldn't accept that like, somehow this goofball reality TV star could beat the presumptive next president, Hillary Clinton, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, I think politics is like, is unique and kind of like, Melting people's brains <laughs> a little bit um, in terms of like people like not, um, people see things through a very partisan lens, obviously. That's not like breaking any news. Um, but I don't think they realize how much that affects their, their perception. Like the polls that per se are not partisan instruments, right per se you could say I really want the Democrat to win, but I can recognize the Republicans up by five points in the state, right? Um, but it really kind of warps people's perceptions.
0: Yeah, anyone who was following 538 predictions in 2016 was betting on Trump. So for me, that was a that was a clear a clear predictive win.
2: You remember Brandon? We were in London during Brexit, like the day of the Brexit vote.
0: Yeah, that was that was fun. That was some pretty insane. Betting action, pretty, pretty insane swings.
2: I didn't have any bets on Brexit, but I remember talking to you when Brexit happened and saying, I think the chance of Trump winning is higher than I would have priced in yesterday or whatever, you know, it's because <laughs> both of them were a bit of a like. A, um, lashing out at kind of the consensus wisdom at elite, this kind of. uh I think there was, I don't know what you can call that, like a somewhat of a rebellious vote or whatever in in both of those things against the kind of established political class. And I think people have now solved for that quite well in the last few years and understand a bit of, of what happened, why a lot of models got it wrong, why a lot of supposed experts got it wrong on both Brexit and um, Trump. But I think that's something that'd be better if you start having an idea of before those things happen in the future. I mean, Brexit was this
1: fairly direct parallel to Trump, right? And by the way, Trump also, we were bullish on Trump relative to the market in the general election in 2016. We were not in the primary. Um, So we deserve being skeptical, Chris is being skeptical about Trump winning the GOP primary. Um, But you have these warnings, right? He won the primary and people did not expect him to, and then Brexit happened. And so it was kind of, it was kind of shocking that people were so shocked um, by the same kind of theme happening again in the, in the general election in 2016. Um, I mean, it's really kind of weird, but like people, I don't know, people don't like uncertainty <laughs> is part of it, right? Like in years where 538 would have a model and we'd say, okay, conventional wisdom is that Obama's a slight favorite over Mitt Romney, but actually he's a pretty heavy favorite. Um, like people understood that and they appreciated that product a lot right um when you're telling people most of whom i mean most political news consumers even if 538 related content are partisans and they're reading the information because they are rooting for one candidate or the other right and probably more of our readers are democrats right um they don't like the message that actually this outcome is less certain (laughs) than you think yes clinton is favored but like but it's actually kind of close right that kind of uh is not what people are looking to to hear, or at least what they were not looking to hear in 2016. Post 2016, all of a sudden, Democrats are a lot more sympathetic to hearing about uncertainty and they don't want overconfidence or whatnot. But um,
0: do you have an estimate of which presidential election was the most heavily bet? Because uh, on a high stakes poker a few months ago at the table, we were debating how much might have been bet on the 2020 election, and the estimates were in the range of 15 billion. Um, but 2012 was a, a yeah. very, very highly bet election. Uh, 2016 had some heavy betting action. I, I I'm not sure, uh, which is the winner. It's, it's one of those three elections.
1: I think it might've been, I mean, there was a lot of slightly weird and interesting market action in 2012, but I, th- I don't know if there was like organized campaigns like kind of buy up that was proven right like
0: that or or
1: at least like
0: academics have written papers where they strongly believe that there was there was betting action on Romney for the purpose of influencing public opinion right I'm not going out on a limb with that
1: no I think it was it was demonstrated yeah um and also 2012 remember that's an election where like Romney's an old school Republican that probably is um you know good for business, quote unquote, and good for Wall Street, right? So you kind of have like, so you have like, direct financial interest to hedge against that outcome. Whereas with with, with Trump, I mean, it's kind of unclear, I would think kind of (laughs) what's good for quote unquote, the market Biden or or Trump winning,
0: but I've never seen I've never seen someone bet for the purpose of hedging like people. The the logical hedge would be to bet against Romney if you were very Pro business, or you—you you had a lot at stake in terms of um, in, in terms of business interests, and uh, that's not what was happening. You just had.
2: Yeah, I've never really heard yeah. of people doing that on the presidential election. Like people hedge in other ways, but the presidential yeah. election—they just bet who they want to win. That's everything I've heard. <laughs>
1: you, should, you should hedge, right? You're like if you wanted Biden to win, right? You should have said, "I'm going to bet." Trump at two to one for, for hundred K. Right. So if, you know, if Trump wins and I'll be sad, but at least I'll have 200,000 bucks or something, but yeah.
0: So you think there's a chance that 2012 was the most highly bet election in terms of cumulative volumes?
1: I would bet on 2012 being especially inflation adjusted, if that matters being the highest volume.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I would pick 2020. I mean, I'm not sure. Well, I don't, but I I didn't know that thing about 2012. I just know. Are it. we
1: counting the post-election period in 2020? Because 2012 was over that night,
2: right? Um,
1: 2020, you still had market action for <laughs> for much longer than there really was any doubt. I think, and election night, you had very a huge amount of volatility. Um, yeah. Well, Betfair.
0: Let's just say accounts for m- most of the post election activity and betfair maybe is 10% of the total tom i don't know
2: i have no idea no i mean there there was like some of the us sports books had and then the one crypto site that i just did a podcast with the guy they had also which that was a funny thing their their um price on trump was like 2.5x the price of betfair even though, I mean, I think they traded a few hundred million. Um, and Betfair traded more than that. And it's it's kind of weird to have such a big, you know, Betfair had Trump like four to 5%, and FTX had them like nine or 10%, which is kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is something I'm going to have to research for, for the book and try to do some actual understanding. There's various theories tossed around about like, uh, I don't know, like people wanting to, um, cash out their bets because different sites weren't paying out. I don't know. I mean, I think like an element was that like, <laughs> there was some degree of actual crazy in the market or I don't know. I don't want to, I mean, again, in a, in a year and a half from now, we have another podcast that I'll be more knowledgeable about exactly why. The- I, think,
0: I think there's strong evidence that betters have hyperbolic discounting. They have extreme time preference, for instance, like on betfair or other exchanges, it's not uncommon for like the game to be over but there will be action at the 1.01 price because there's always someone offering like 1.01 after the event is finished just in case someone wants to cash out before the market is settled like someone is that impatient and there always is action at that level because like there's some person who just wants to put the money in place straight away and they'll just cash out for that vig, um, so there, there's evidence in o- other markets of extreme hyperbolic discounting, extreme impatience. That that it could well have been that
2: simple.
1: I mean, maybe, but it was like 1.09 or something, right? I mean,
2: that seems like it's a pretty big price to pay. I don't know. Well, Betfair <laughs> was like 1.0405. FTX okay, yeah. was like 1.09. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, they did those different. They had like a trump coin so it was like 9% but effectively like 1.09 on fair.
0: so speaking of crypt- crypto world Nate you highlighted that you might have some chapters on crypto nfts i'm i'm curious are you going to go into the finance realm at all because that's that's its own black hole you could get lost there for some time debating market efficiency or or, or market inefficiency so do you do you intend to wade in those waters how much will there be on uh, crypto NFTs? Because, okay, I thought when Tom came up in poker, I thought Tom may be the biggest gambler of his generation, and it was a generation that gambled pretty heavily. This new generation in crypto, younger than us, just absolutely gambles their faces off. Like, they put our generation to shame. Is that fair to say, Tom? Like... These, they're they're putting you to shame as a gambler, which is really saying something.
1: So yeah, you're, you're like literally ticking off different chapters, right? I mean, there has to be a chapter, I think, on, um, on you know, like hedge funds and venture capital firms and kind of proper eye investing, right? We have to tackle like crypto and NFTs, maybe even kind of the traditional like art market is an interesting little triad if you're going from NFTs into that, right? Um, So these are all areas that, like, I'm super interested in. Um, I mean, the book's going to start with, like, a heavy focus on, like, poker and sports betting because, like, um, those are things that I know personally. Um, And that is going to give things, like, a really really solid foundation, I hope. And, like, I'm probably guilty of too often using, like, poker and sports analogies in my writing. But, like, in this book, we're kind of encouraging that, I think. Um, But, yeah, it's going to start by, like, demonstrating hopefully a really Thorough kind of up close and personal understanding of these things, where I do have skin in the game um, as someone who's kind of builds models myself, and then have to become more of like a reporter for the rest of the book and, and interview people and learn about and learn about things. Um, but I hope that like, I mean, one thing is like the bar I think is somewhat low in the sense that like usually when journalists write about any of these topics, right? It's kind of grossly oversimplified. It usually kind of moralizes a lot or it kind of mystifies too much, right? It says, oh, this person is some super genius and like will never understand his or her gifts, right? And so kind of trying to to demystify these things um, to understand some of the, you know, kind of moral and other ambiguities behind them. I mean, it does seem to me that like people are just going nuts for any type of gambling or gambling adjacent Activity, right? I don't know if it's something because of like um, because of COVID, where people just kind of needed more risk in their life to kind of supplement <laughs> the I don't know if it's a reaction to boredom or whatever else, right? Because you saw lots of behavior during COVID, like people like um, speeding increased a lot, you know, people driving cars and motorcycles too fast, right? Um, heavy consumption of alcohol and drugs increased a lot. Um, lighting fireworks increased a lot, right? But kind of thrill seeking, kind of risk seeking behavior, I think maybe um gonna last.
0: Tom, what how would you explain this generation? Because a lot of a lot of the crypto space and the NFT space is driven by like under 35, under 30. And maybe they don't have the net worth that the older, older generation has, but they have so much risk tolerance that they, they punch greater than their weight in markets. Um, how would you explain the, uh, extreme risk tolerance of the younger generation?
2: I don't think I have a good answer for that. You know, it's something I've thought about, but I don't have a clear, like, I have some guesses. That's about it.
0: It's almost like gamification of the, of the markets, right? Because this, this generation came up with games and on screens and it's it, there has been a certain gamification of of all markets.
1: I mean, maybe it reflects like affluence in a way. I don't know, right? Because one theory I have that probably will not hold up, right? But like, because supposedly poker players from Sweden and Northern Europe are like, I mean, they're kind of crazy and aggressive by stereotype. Um, and it's like the most affluent societies in the history of mankind, basically with a huge welfare, the luxury of having a welfare state to protect you. If, if things go wrong, I don't know. Right. That's one theory, or maybe it's boredom. Um, and kind of if, um, if society feels as though it lacks risk that you somehow have a human need, um, to, to compensate for that somehow, I don't know. I'm going to like talk to like, you know, find some evolutionary biologists and people like that and talk about kind of, um, evolutionarily kind of is risk-taking something that you'd be selecting for or selecting out under what circumstances and how has that kind of evolved over, over time.
0: One thing that's seemingly unique about the, the crypto space is.
2: I want to jump back on that one when you, but okay, go ahead. Oh,
0: go ahead. Take, take it, Tom
2: so it depends what kind of society you live in if you live in an authoritarian society risk-taking will evolve out pretty quickly because the people that take risks are a threat to the state or the king or whatever and so they'll be killed and so if you look at history or sorry uh, uh, cultures that have throughout history had a more authoritarian society often those cultures want to take less risks in certain ways but then that'll weirdly sometimes Result in them, get you know, taking more risks in other ways. Um, so I think it depends a lot on like, you know, the, the evolution of people over the last few thousand years. Like where they, where you know, if you were in some place between a bunch of different, somewhat powerful, different kings or whatever in Europe or something, maybe risk taking was good because you ended up carving out your little space, right? But if you were sitting in China and there's one emperor for a lot of the time, then was taking probably was going to result in your bloodline being stamped out you know
1: cross national surveys of risk tolerance um although the results when i saw them were not super intuitive so i don't know if that means my intuitions are wrong and biased or if the survey is (laughs) is weird but yeah but there is is there's attempts to quantify this
2: people also have different risk tolerance for different things right so different cultures may have more risk tolerance for gambling but less for skydiving and more for certain you know like so i i think a lot of times those things aren't easy to put one figure on i think sometimes you might need a a few figures like a a few different answers depending on what kind of risk um i don't know yeah and and like the brexit and trump stuff i think both of those were people lashing out because they didn't really feel heard so they were willing to take risks that a lot of the world thought were crazy you know a lot of their countries a lot of people outside their, their country or their space thought was crazy, but they were sitting there not feeling heard. And they're like, okay, look, gamble. Like,
1: No, I mean, I think you would explicitly kind of hear that from some segment of voters. Like, right? it's like, well, why not take a chance? I mean, they would use that verbiage, right? Usually, like, um, you know, usually people don't use that verbiage when talking about <laughs> about a political candidate they would choose, right? But people would say, I'll take a take a chance on Trump. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> you know, um, that might be something to model for
2: the future. When you yeah. <laughs> get enough of those, your uncertainty has to start going down, like yeah, yeah. or start going up. I mean, sorry, like meaning en- enough of that kind of yeah, that kind of vote of people feeling like they have no other choice. I think that becomes very hard to quantify. Then what they're going to do from there.
0: You mentioned that you would have a chapter on the traditional art market. I think there are similarities between the traditional art market and the NFT market because in the traditional art market, you really don't have many exits on the investment side, right? You have, you have demands bidding up marginal price and then people assuming that the marginal price, is indicative of the value of all art, but you rarely, you rarely have sales really there. There's not a tremendously active market. If you look at most individual collectors, they either buy and never sell or they buy and then get them appraised and gift them away or something like that. In in NFTs, we're at a very interesting time in the market where, clearly new demand translates into higher marginal price. And it makes everyone feel good that the, that the value of their holdings is, is high, but there's not much selling that's going on. And you don't, you don't really know how successful one has been until they have the demonstrated cash on cash return. It's one of, it's one of the beauties of poker and sports is that we, you deal in instantaneous cash transactions and you know your your cash on cash return. Um, mm-hmm. And stuff like M- NFTs, seemingly they've done unbelievably well, but there aren't a lot of people cashing out.
1: I mean, there, are, I mean, there may actually be similarities to like... Um, yeah, but like the market for professional sports franchises may have some similarities in certain ways, but I don't know. I mean, all this stuff is like, I, you know, if I look back at like the, um, Topic outline I had for Signal when I kind of started writing that, um, a lot of things I had sketched out wound up being very wrong. My kind of uneducated conception of them versus kind of when you when you spend a lot of time reporting and talking to people and learning about stuff. Um, but yeah,
0: you bring a unique voice to thinking about risk, and this this book is going to be a unique perspective. Who do you think are the best original thinkers? on the subject of risk markets?
1: It's not people in <laughs> in the political world, I don't think. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, like I have had like very um, big rivalries with Taleb, right? But I think especially his kind of first two books, he's at least kind of thinking about the stuff in ways that are original and interesting. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think some of the behavioral economics literature is useful here. I'm always a big fan of Kahneman. I'm a big fan of like, um, Dick Thaler. Um, you know, I think, um, Michael Lewis is someone who, um, who understands <laughs> these things and is one of the kind of, um, better people are kind of being able to get in the head of how, um, how someone in one of these fields might, might think, um, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of really interesting to see, like, um, you know, Maria Kanakova's book, The Biggest Bluff, because she's kind of coming from the opposite direction, right? She's writing for The New Yorker, writing kind of lots of great books about science and kind of like plunging in and and trying to learn poker and becoming extremely good in a short period of time. Um, But, you know, kind of that's that's a fascinating book to read. I knew
0: that would be a big success when she sent the advance copy and I, I read it the night I received it. It was just so smoothly written. You could you could tell that it would find a wide audience. Uh, she did it's, a great service to poker. What's her
2: book mainly about poker?
0: Her experience in, in poker over a two-plus year period, learning from Eric Seidel. I, I, I don't remember you uh, making an appearance in there, Tom. We have some. There was some lucky, chewy uh content there was a good bit of patrick antonius content there was some galfon content but for i she did she definitely mentioned your name a couple times but they
2: i think one thing that's interesting with risk is like so i was just talking to some friends about this you know do you guys know this stuff happening right now with uh in in russia where they're like moving a lot of troops around and there's a lot of people are worried they're about you know this looks like past times they were aggressive not familiar Also the last like week or two that's been happening a bit
0: don't don't give any don't give away any state secrets that you learned in poker games we know that happens sometimes
2: <laughs> no this is all public information but it's something that's not being talked about that much and like i wish there was a market on it of like what's the chance russia tries to redefine some borders one to to see that and see like where the market would price it but two You know, I think that this kind of like betting on these kind of events. um, Inherently, if something like that was going to happen, there would need to be a lot of people that have an idea of it. And trying to get that info from those people, there's there's a lot of issues with. Right. Because. That would be like, you know, someone trying to get effectively like Russian classified info, like, oh, they're about to go in and, you know, redefine some borders somewhere. But if those people could just bet and make basically guaranteed money. You know, if you made it frictionless enough that they didn't need to give their ID and stuff and like a lot of these crypto political betting markets are like that, I think you'd start noticing a lot of times, hmm, you know, we would have guessed with this information, this is 10%, but the market's pricing at 50%. I wonder what the chances are.
1: This comes up a lot, right? Like for a tennis match or like a MMA fight, like an individual sport, especially where something seems like it's mispriced, you're like, oh, do people have inside information? You can kind of go you can go back and forth between assuming there must be some inside information here and convincing yourself. And, and sometimes it isn't true. Right. I mean, I, I know in like political betting markets, like we would often like, um, cause I work for, you know, five thirty part of ABC news. Right. So I do not, by the way, bet in political betting markets myself, that would be all types of ethical violations of my contract with ABC. Um, but there are lots of times when like, um, we have had, Early knowledge of some political development or some poll, um, and the markets don't pick up on it generally, even though there are probably hundreds of journalists who have the same information.
2: Um, but how? What do you think the net worth is of those average people? Because I would guess it's less than the net worth of a bunch of the people that would need to know if Russia was going to redefine some borders or a lot of these other geopolitical things. That yeah,
1: are, I mean the journalists are, are making upper middle class. Incomes generally,
2: right? I think there's ways to solve for that in some like, you know, uh, (laughs) some prediction markets that would be really interesting and like, I don't know, I think there's a lot of those random uh, kind of world events that People assume one kind of common wisdom. And, you know, if you look like before Crimea, as an example, people assumed, oh, international borders are international borders. Like, it would be cool if, you, if there was something like that solved for. And I think that might come in the next decade or two that these kind of random things start getting solved for. I mean, one example is Trump is Brexit, which those kind of things there are markets on. Um, but I think the more you start having markets on obscure things that have real world impact, um, meaning if, say, three or four years out, you somehow seeded a market on who are the next presidential candidates going to be. I think you'd start seeing a bunch of interesting results. Um, where, where right now, if people have a really good inside track on who's going to win, you know, who they think is going to win the Republican nomination and why, like, okay, this person's good at these certain things, whatever these this skill set. What are they going to do with that information? Right, there's not a real way to profit on it a lot. But if you set that up, you start getting really interesting.
0: Whatever happened to Augur, that that was supposed to be Augur's role, right? The uh betting market for everything, like the the bet of the crypto space. It it never developed as promised, right?
2: Yeah. So after the presidential election, I think it was Augur. There was Augur, Omen, and then there's Polymarket. Um, and Augur was the one I think that they because because they wanted to resolve things in a decentralized way, which doesn't really make sense. Like a lot of the kind of decentralized ethos in crypto makes sense, but having like a third party completely decentralized what they call Oracle to resolve prediction markets just inherently doesn't really work because you can have a situation like Trump's election where Trump says, no, actually I won. And then people are like, well, we're holding the Trump coin. What if we just vote and attack the Oracle and say Trump won? Yeah. And that was a big concern on, Aur- on Augur that people were worried it was going to resolve as if Trump had won the election. Yeah. So obviously if you have, if there's a Brandon Adams, you know, political or sorry, a uh, prediction market site, if Nate and I were betting on there, we wouldn't be worried that you're just going to randomly say Trump won. Cause if that happens, the value of your business goes close to zero overnight. Right. But if you have a decentralized system and enough money's bet on one certain event, maybe they're going to attack the system as a whole, just to resolve that. Th- those people have different interests than the system as a whole
0: you know yeah auger had a, a lot of promise uh it's sort of shocking that it that it has fallen flat it's it's proven very hard for betting markets to gain liquidity in general right betfair had a had a long ride they started as as flutter.com in 1999 i think with lots of funding and it took many years for them to have liquidity. Um, it's harder than you would think to get very liquid markets on stuff like elections and, and even sports.
2: Well, I think you need to seed them. So i be willing to lose little bits on a bunch of different interesting markets. Like the thing I was saying of, you know, if, if, you, if we were to go put up a market on what's the chance Russia tries to redefine some borders or what's the chance, you know, whatever random world event that's interesting you're going to lose some money if you give some tens of thousands in liquidity because you're either going to have people who know the market better than you or people that actually have inside information on something. But if you do those things a few times, I think that's like amazing advertising for a prediction market.
0: Yeah. Sports, the fact that inside information is not illegal in sports does make them stronger predictive markets because- The reason markets are efficient in general is because consensus estimates tend to be more powerful than any individual's estimate it consensus filters out any idiosyncratic error in individual estimates and then market prices tend to be an even stronger form of that where at the extreme one person who's fully informed can completely determine price so one person who knew for sure that russia was going to invade they could like fully determine the price um And so we, we think that, that betting markets should be uh, extremely predictive. And it, if, if you're going for max predictive power, then you actually want inside information to be legal and possible because you just want that information un, unveiled quickly.
2: Well, and I don't think you want inside information legal and possible in most areas because that hurts financial markets. It hurts you know a lot of these things, but there's... And even in sports, I don't think inside information is that uh, important of a piece in a lot of different sports because athletes are paid a lot. There's a lot of incentives to not have info leak too much.
0: No, but simple, simple information like whether key players on the NBA slate are going to play tonight. There's so much market incentive in knowing that information before other people that. They're they're not markets I'm involved in, but there are people that would like work super hard to get that information quickly and have it reflected in market prices.
2: Right, but the MBA makes a lot of money and it's in their interest to not have that leak. And they can have the people that would have that information be making really large amounts of money. So there are ways to somewhat control for that. It's more when you have information that a lot of people may have that's valuable and they don't have significant amounts of money, then there's like an inherent R, if you can figure out how to solve for it, right? If, every, if everyone who has certain information is making 500k plus a year, it's going to be a lot harder for you to get that information. You need much more upside. You need, much, you know, but if there's a bunch of people who have valuable information that are making 10k a year,
1: it's, so if some low-ranking member in the Russian army or something.
0: or in the NBA, it's like the beat reporters, right? Like there's always there's always someone who's low-paid,
2: and that's just one example I brought up. I think there also was something interesting with like the Trump and Brexit stuff of people wanting change wanting to be heard you know i think i think there's some i, I don't have it myself but there's some interesting uh things to solve where they're of kind of collective wisdom um when people's conviction is higher and stuff and you know if you look at the example of the, the election um, or brexit the conventional wisdom of a lot of experts had certain flaws because those experts shared a similar bubble share you know
1: I mean, in Brexit, there was a very clear bias for like a cosmopolitan worldview, right? Because the polls showed Brexit being basically a dead heat. People kind of misremember this now, but they showed, you know, maybe if he had a polling-based model, it would be 55-45 remain. Um, And the market was like 85-15 remain or something, right? It was completely off-kilter from...
2: The day of, it was even more.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, and that was just because, oh, well, we know the British people are sensible and my friends will, you know... They wouldn't really leave the European Union. I've become very um, pro Brexit now, by the way, because of like how much better the vaccine situation is in <laughs> in the UK than the EU. Like they're literally going to avoid an entire whatever third or fourth wave it is that the EU is experiencing solely because of like having superior policy with respect to vaccines. And so that seems like it might outweigh a lot of <laughs> other consequences potentially. But yeah.
2: Yeah, I had thought Brexit, like, I'm not British, I do go there a bit, but I thought it wasn't in the best interest of the UK. And my conviction on that is definitely a lot less high now than it was a few years ago. Like, there's definitely some some interesting, you know, uh, benefits that have come to the UK from, from Brexit, that being one of the biggest or clearest ones, at least I should say.
0: So, Nate... Um... You've been a big fan over the years of, of Philip Tetlock and some of his thinking on on prediction. He he has his long term project on super forecasters, and he he takes the view that you can sort of do better weighting the opinions of super forecasters than you could you can just weighting a, a global average of opinions.
2: What's a super forecaster?
0: It's almost like a professional forecaster, someone who spends all of their time in uh, forecasting. Nate, I, perhaps you could explain it a little better. But it's a it's a group of people that are dedicated forecasters and have have proven themselves to be better forecasters than the general public. So I believe that Tetlock he basically allows anyone to submit forecasts for a range of things. And there's some very mild incentive to be a good forecaster, but it's mainly pride. And he has a group of people that have over a long period of time submitted better forecasts and they are his super forecasters and they tend to be persistent outperformers.
1: I mean, I, I buy telex research, um, with a little bit of a spin, which is, I think, I think it's probably true that like people who study like the meta META part of forecasting, right? um, Treat it like its own discipline or become frankly good estimators, which is a skill that overlaps with poker and sports betting, right? um, I buy there's a learnable skill there. Um, But I think the real headline for Tetlock is not that the super forecasters are so good, but the experts are so bad <laughs> in their own fields, that domain experts are often like quite bad at um, at prediction. And I think part of the reason why is like, um, has to do with like professional incentives and the nature of how expertise is perceived. You know what I mean? Like if you're like Dr. Anthony Fauci talking about COVID, you probably are like extremely constrained in what you can say, um, You also have the issue that like, you might actually influence people's behavior, (laughs) what states do about COVID and how individual people behave. And so that becomes like kind of more complicated, but like, um, but you know, the minute that your incentive as an expert is to maintain your reputation as an expert and whatever um, good that does for society, if you're Dr. Fauci or whatever income stream that provides, if you work for like some fund or something, right? um, That's a pretty strong perversion From the incentive to like kind of um, have the most accurate prediction. Um, And so, you know, um, like a lot of epidemiologists on Twitter or public health people on Twitter will kind of make a prediction about, oh, COVID cases are going to have, are going to rise or decline or whatever, right? To like advocate for a particular policy. We have to shut down. Indoor dining or something, right? And they're like policy advocacy may be in the right place, but like, um, but kind of start with the with the conclusion and then kind of make a forecast to justify it, not the other way around, at least some of the time, right? Where if you're like a, if you're not an epidemiologist, no one's asking you for your opinion about should we close restaurants. Then maybe you can be a little bit more at arm's length and able to kind of actually focus on like. Um, predicting how this thing will behave and not and not trying to dictate policy or or moralize or or affect people's behavior or whatnot
2: i think there's also an issue sometimes where people that are experts in a field will land too much in the policy area and not stay in their lane Mm -hmm. enough and i'm a pretty big fauci fan myself but i would give a pretty strong criticism of him on the mask stuff yeah. that in march and i think even some of april 2020 um he was saying people shouldn't go by masks, masks were or you know didn't didn't help and i know i was actually in asia in the time to- at the time i'm in hong kong and assumed that that he was right and when they kind of knew he was wrong he explained the science of why he was wrong and i was wearing a mask when in the west people were talking about oh this you know these masks don't help and the science yeah. was they do help and the scientists knew they did help but they were like oh we need to save them for the doctors but the issue is once you effectively lie once like mm-hmm. i think i can look back and say okay fauci you effectively lied wish you hadn't done that you were probably under a lot of stress still like the guy a lot would like to have a beer with them you know think he did a great job overall yeah. but if someone was sitting there in June or July, they might have looked at Fauci's advice been like, well, he lied that one time. Maybe he's lying this time. Screw it. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And it makes it a little easier for people to ignore something when in reality, it's probably like, oh, he was under a lot of pressure. He didn't mean to tell a mistruth or, you know, no, I, I think- look at it a certain way. And I think that happens a lot where someone who's an expert in their area goes a bit outside their lane and... You know, I use this as an example of someone who's an expert that I really like, that I think most people really like. And even he, I think, went a little outside his lane in that one spot. And I do think it cost some.
1: No, I think, I mean, first of all, the tendency for like the news media to try to treat people as being oracular, right. And kind of not recognizing what their lane is. I mean, I got this a lot, like kind of after I kind of blew up a lot in like 2008, 2012, people, you like predict things that like you have no particular qualification they put like way too much weight on things where you don't have expertise frankly um you know but at the same time like i think the public health field did kind of not recognize that like covid's a repeated (laughs) game in a game theory sense like people are going to like look at what you said last time and how credible that was and then they're going to like adjust their behavior accordingly even like all these like blue states right when like State epidemiologists, epidemiologists were saying, "Hey, look, it's too early to open up restaurants, right? Just wait another month or two, Which I think is, you know, probably supported by the science, right? The governor's just ignore that and like, "Fuck it, we're going to open restaurants because they're going down. It's been a year, um, and it's because like, there had been like too much kind of noble lying, quote unquote, taking place. You're like, you're trying to nudge people in the right direction, and you figure like, it's okay to fudge a little bit, but like." People figure that out after after a year, especially a year where like they have to make like a lot of like day-to-day decisions. And I don't know. I mean, one thing we always try to do with like 538 and I try and do in the book um, or we'll try and do in the previous book and the new book, um, it's just kind of treat people as intelligent. Like don't be too prescriptive. Like to me, it's like with, with the CDC guidance that comes out. Okay. The important part to me is that you get a vaccine and once you're fully vaccinated, then it reduces risk of getting symptomatic COVID by 95% and transmission by probably 80 to 90% or something and death by 99% or something. Right. And like, I can like make those adjustments on my own (laughs) to my behavior. Right. I don't need to give me like a playbook for like now what I can do. I I kind of have some sense for myself. right? Right. But the prescriptive nature of it, which kind of, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think kind of tends to get people in in
2: trouble. There might be someone who's an expert that you want them to tell you what are these facts. And I think too often those experts, especially when the news media gets involved, are pushed to say, okay, and now what should someone do with those facts? Where where you might, you know, people might be curious what your opinion is of what they should do, but they care or they value that a little less than your opinion of what are the actual facts of the polling data or what are, you know, for a doctor, what are the actual facts of the epidemiology? You know, they may still care about the opinion, but it's like, they, they don't want it to be treated the exact same.
1: No, it's, it's I mean, it's so often you read stuff like, okay, well, um, COVID cases are increasing in Massachusetts according to my analysis, right? That means we have to shut down X, Y, and Z again. It's like, okay, just stop with the first sentence, right? Because your expertise, which I could not replicate, comes in understanding epidemiological data and being able to be, be able to predict a trend. Better than the average person does, right? Um, the question of kind of behavioral changes is kind of a intrinsically political question that you may not be the only expert in, right? If you're looking at, for example, should we shut down schools, then okay. I also wanna to talk to like child development people about kind of what impact that would have or teachers or educators um, or parents, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, the whole notion of expertise has been kind of, I think, you know, it's been challenging under, <laughs> under COVID. And of course, it's like a lot of like, there's a lot of like turf wars over who is entitled to speak over what, right? And invariably it's like not on the questions that actually are the kind of purely scientific questions. It's about the triple questions where, where lots of people do have the right to, <laughs> to weigh in, right? Or do not just have the right, but they have like different expertise that's relevant, right? Um, where people wanna police their domain a lot more.
2: I think it's a shame the stuff that happened in a lot of the West with COVID where if you look back about the worst possible thing to do was a lot of reasonably half-assed lockdowns. And what happened was a lot of reasonably half-assed lockdowns. And, you know, like Sweden, which uh, didn't have that, Florida, which had less of it, the numbers aren't that much different. It was like, you should definitely protect the retirement homes and things like that. There, There were probably some public health measures that could have been done. Um, around that but also you can look at a place like Australia that said we're going to have very very strict lockdowns and they were able to control you know um, and it seems like the somewhat half-assed lockdowns like sure you you politically might look a little better in the short term but then people get worn out they don't listen to future advice you know
1: I mean there's a there's a kind of cheap poker analogy which is like it's a kind of a raise fold (laughs) spot right and people a lot of time bad poker players will kind of Call in a spot where there are two challenging options, right? And they'll kind of pick a half-ass in between. But no, it's absolutely right. The best thing you could do on COVID if you if you did Australia and success pulled off zero or near zero COVID, clearly that's that's the nuts, right? Um, but the second best play might be to do Sweden and and not um, <laughs> the US or something, right? Where like we're like you avoid a little bit of mortality for um, well, maybe the US is better than europe or i don't know but yeah you would like a little bit of mortality for like a lot less um us is
2: going to be better than europe because of the vaccines you know
1: with the vaccines yeah i mean it's hard to know like i think people like i mean it's it's worth noting that like almost all major countries in europe and north america kind of fucked up roughly equally badly with the exception of like germany and canada um and like norway i think um but like a lot of different governments with different value systems kind of wound up in the same right. fairly difficult. I don't know, I mean, you spent a lot more time in Asia. Like to me, it's like, you know, <laughs> among other things, COVID's like a huge argument for like bullishness on like something is happening that's clearly working well in, in Asia. I don't know. I mean, I guess, right?
2: I mean, I think there's people follow rules more generally in Asia and, but I also think there was a little bit more effective messaging. And a lot of the West seem to not want to say like, hmm, I guess we should learn from Taiwan and Hong Kong, at least. You know, I could understand them not saying we want to learn from China. The data is opaque. You don't know how much you can trust these kind of things. But yeah, you could look at Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, Japan somewhat, like places that had reasonable outbreaks and they were able to control it pretty well and be like, oh, let's learn some from them. And that didn't really happen. And uh, I know I've talked to a lot of people and I'm, you know, really not much of a Trump fan, a lot of that's public already. Um, But a lot of people blame Trump for all of this. And I do definitely think he could have done a much better job. But there's a point that like, look at how many other countries had pretty similar, you know, uh, societies and stuff in the West and had a similar problem to the one the US did. Like, you kind of can't pin that all on Trump. Does he deserve some blame? Sure, probably. But you know, I think there's like a, a bigger issue. Ever. I mean,
1: the problem is like, if your primary tool is um, is lockdowns, right? Then like people will only be willing to do a certain amount of lockdowns for a certain length of time and they're kind of a very like costly intervention, right? So you have to like eventually, um, you know, do the South Korea stuff, like the testing and the tracing and the quarantine and maybe give up a little bit of privacy, right? But that's what surprised me. I kind of thought, well, it's so clear that like, all these people dying from COVID is unacceptable and that lockdowns are incredibly cumbersome and costly if they happen over more than a period of a few weeks, right? These alternatives are so awful that we'll have to somehow evolve toward like South Korea or Taiwanese strategies because it's like just so much better than, <laughs> than either alternative, right? And somehow we, we didn't, um, but neither did like most other kind of Western or, or American countries.
2: I think that was that's your opinion. And not everyone shared that opinion, that
1: you yeah. know, some
2: people didn't necessarily believe the downsides and didn't necessarily believe that the country should be shut down even if those downsides were true. And I think that was like a political discussion that should have happened, that never really did.
1: I mean, that's that's one thing I think Trump did make very difficult, right? I think he kind of like poisoned the discussion about like about schools because a lot of Democrats were like. I mean, Democrats are supposed to be the party that cares about education, right? Um, but like, opinion was very partisan on schools, which is a very difficult issue based on people polarizing around around Trump, and that shifted a little bit more once Biden took office. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of my big kind of critique of like of COVID policy is like, is people aren't pricing in the cost of like lockdowns properly. It's like hard to measure, right? Um, but you know, you see increases in like um, deaths from like drug abuse over the past year. But it's not just that; it's like kind of like you know, um, it's costly to like not be able to see family, see friends, participate in religious and political activity. Right? Um, some countries even banned outdoor activity for some period of time. Like these things are like you know the damage to like um, you know cultural institutions and so forth. I mean. It was kind of surprising to me how much people were kind of willing to kind of treat that as like a a rounding error (laughs) you know what i mean because it is kind of harder to to measure i guess right if you had some like unit of how much happiness you gain from um going out to dinner with your family or something like that then maybe (laughs) maybe we could try to weigh one thing against another but like i don't know
2: um I think that's part of yeah. where the lack of political support came from. These things that were harder to measure were somewhat ignored, um, at least in the media discussion. I think a lot, and partly because of that, people were like, "Well, wait, these things matter." So if you're going to ignore those, and and that's part of where I think a lot of the less uh, sorry, a lot of the West didn't have the political support that some of the Asian countries did, that Australia did, New Zealand did. Now look. Australia and New Zealand are islands. So that's part of why, you know, they also had an easier uh, problem set. Um, But you you know, when you, there was a number of countries that managed a lot better than a lot of countries in the West. And so I think, sure, you can look at isolated ones here or there say, Oh, this one had these advantages. This one had an Island, but you can also look at like Taiwan and Hong Kong having and Japan, having so many cases early on and being able to get reasonable control of it. And I think, a bit of that comes down to political will, kind of. And some of those, it's because there's a little bit different, um, you know, kind of culture around the politics in those countries. But Australia and New Zealand are pretty similar to a lot of the rest of the West. And fine, they have, you know, they are islands, but like that was still a somewhat addressable thing, I think, for, for a lot of the West, if they had tried to do it a bit different and had more of that political discussion of like, here are the two options. But instead, it became a lot of, you know, a very political problem, at least in America. I don't know as well like in France or something exactly how that argument went down. But at least in the U.S., it became very political where you had, you know, people on the left saying that opening schools was absolutely ridiculous, which like the science says it's somewhat reasonable to consider and maybe should have been happening a lot earlier than it did. And then people on the right saying that wearing a mask took away their freedom, which like probably, you know, at least in public transport or if we're all going to a Starbucks or something, probably people should have been wearing masks, you know, at least- No, it's like, I mean, it's- it. And then
1: the vaccines, right? Like why was the EU trying to nickel and dime these companies to sell to, you know, pay $15 per vaccine instead of 18 bucks or something, right? I I mean, like that. the economic value of vaccines like 2000 bucks per citizen or something if you try to calculate it, right? Um, so it's like, it's just, Totally crazy, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know if you had poker players <laughs> running a COVID policy, I'm not sure what would have happened. There probably all types of other different types of mistakes, but like, um, but the kind of getting the order of magnitude right about things, right? That like wearing a mask is like very not costly relative to the benefit it provides that lockdowns, it's a much more of a debate that vaccines exceed by two orders of magnitude, the literal cost you, you pay for them, right? Like even, even that would have been helpful.
2: Right, I think that's something that was missed, this kind of order of magnitude, even to go on the mask thing, like there were places where everyone was wearing a mask outside people were 30, 50 feet away, which like the science kind of says you don't really need to be doing. And yet other places where, because I actually traveled a little, I was in Asia for most of COVID and I traveled a little when I, when I got back and other places where you would have people in Starbucks and no one was wearing a mask, or like Vegas yeah. where they, and it's like, hey, if you're gonna have a, you know, 15 minute interaction indoors, like yeah, masks probably help quite a lot. You know, the amount of viral load you're getting, it probably isn't enough for you to get COVID, especially if both people are wearing masks. And, but that, all right, if you're outside, it's not as important. These kind of discussions weren't being had, I think by a lot of the experts. And cause they were looking at it saying like, oh, well, if we say people shouldn't wear a mask outside, that might result in a few more COVID cases, which it might, but it also would have probably resulted in a lot less by saying, hey, what really matters is these short 15, 30 minute interactions when you're on a bus, when you're in a Starbucks, something like that. Really, then try to have your mask on because if that person has COVID, you guys might both dodge it. And that's not yeah. that big of a cost, like wear a mask for 15 minutes. But when people think, oh, you need to wear one 24 seven, you know, I had one of my cousins told me he was. Working a job where he was indoors, had his mask on all day, and he was walking home, and he was like in the middle of the street walking home, and he had taken his mask off. He had been wearing his mask for eight hours. This is in New York, and someone started yelling at him from the restaurant, you know, ten feet away or whatever. And he's he probably had slightly different views overall than I did of science, but, but reasonably close. And I think he was pretty prudent. He had said, you know, he wore his mask all day, and he's like come on, man. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, this is some, yeah. some bad, uh, science. You know, he's walking past the guy outside for 20 seconds or whatever. Even if he's got COVID in costs, he's probably not going to give it to anyone kind of thing. Um, and yet you had people inside in other areas that were like Vegas was an example. I mean, there were tons of people inside tons of like 60, 70 year olds inside with no masks, on, which I found a bit surprising because there's also a difference, like. You know, I, I had COVID two months ago and it wasn't that pleasant, but it wasn't terrible for me. Like the people that are I mean, that, longer mean
1: that's the other thing that's like a, a little I don't know if it's on PC to talk about, right? But like um the risk of like and I have friends who have had like like long COVID, right? It's a real thing. Um and you know, can severely, in one case, a friend, you know, has hurt his quality of life for a year now, we're getting better now. Um but it's a real scary thing, right? But still like the risk is like much, much, much higher um, if you're like over 65, over 75, right? Like just, you know, or of magnitude again, higher. And like the advice, like didn't quite recognize that, right? Um, that I know this really sucks, but if you're age 75, you have to be super fucking careful until the next scene comes i'm sorry right or you know it's up to you right? or if you're
2: going to so, see someone that's age 7 or, or if you're seeing
1: someone who's 75 right um but like there's I some to- of that but like but oh, does so the average does the average american know that like if you're 75 you're like 500 times more likely to die of covid than if you're 35 or whatever it is because it is like somewhere in that night magnitude even more maybe right
2: 75 and roughly 5%. I mean, women less than men, which that was also something that wasn't talked about that much. Women just don't seem to get as bad of a case of COVID as men, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, Um, Obesity is a big risk factor that I think is that, but like people, you know, you want to have this kind of one size fits all advice, but like, um, but the message, I mean, the honest message is like, actually where this is about protecting grandma, right? It's not that like, if you're a 35, you're going to, probably have that severe case that we have to be careful with long COVID and whatnot. It is mostly about the fact that you transmit it on average to two other people, if you're not taking precautions. And one of those two might be someone who would die from it, right? Um, And so we kind of, I don't know. I mean, we were kind of like, people if you look at survey data actually overestimate their own personal risk in a perverse way that might've worked out okay, because like there's an externality to to your risk, right? but it also meant that, like, I mean, just kind of why things were weird, right? We are telling, like, a lot of, like, little little mistruths to people or kind of in what points you emphasize and which ones you don't. Um, you know, when you kind of say, well, anyone can technically get a severe case of COVID and and die, that's true. But, like, but there's much more age dependence and some other conditions than than the average person thinks. And so I, I don't know.
2: So I someone had said something recently about, like, you know, I don't know where I saw this, but If you're 30, if you're 40 and you know, one year of your life you lived locked down, like you can bounce back reasonably well. That's one out of 30 years or one out of 40 years. And if you're seven and you live a year locked down, that's gonna be a lot harder to bounce back. That's one out of eight years I I, tweeted
1: that, I think.
2: Yeah, if you're like, and I
1: don't have kids, but like, if you're like, if you're like, I would be, if I did have like a seven-year-old kid, um, I would be like terrified. Well, first of all, I were a parent and I had a seven-year-old kid then I would read the science and the science would say that like, um, seven year old kids are not going to get sick very often and they probably don't transmit that well. Right. And therefore my kid would have been allowed to like, um, have some play dates. Right. And would have been, I would have sought out a school that was open. Right. Um, I would have been careful, but like, but if you have one of these parents who's like has shut their kid out of society for a year,
0: well, there's one major downside. Um, I can be the authority here. um, so bear age seven thrived through COVID. he had a fantastic year my daughter amelia who's almost 10 she had a good year and by her own admission enjoyed quarantine she uh liked remote learning and liked being at home um however I noticed for Amelia and many other kids Amelia's age, that the long time on screens had some adverse consequences. We, we accelerated screen addiction for this younger generation. And I think that will have
1: some cost for quite a while. Yeah, I, think- yeah, I don't know. I mean, it hardly thinks people are gonna like, rebel against it too and become like- No, that's not the way it works for kids.
0: For kids, their, their natural temperament is calm. They want to be outdoors. They have a very long attention span. And there's some things that they naturally gravitate to that is like long play where they will write stories or tell stories or build stuff with Legos or um, play some fantasy game and it it will, will require a lot of long attention and this is naturally what they do. But then when they have screens enter their life, it becomes a one way street of distraction and they don't go back to long play. And that like every parent observes this. And so screen addiction is kind of a one way street and you don't, you don't want to bring it into your kids' life earlier and i'm i'm afraid that that covid covid did this for a whole generation got them on screens much earlier than than they otherwise would have been and there's no, the uh, kids kids are do not say adults might say well i spent 4 hours a day on my iphone this year that's way too much i'm going to i'm going to put it away and make sure yeah. make sure i'm more deliberate with my time uh no kid is saying Oh, I spent way too much time on my iPad or w- way too much time on Nintendo this year. I'm, I'm gonna be outside all next year. That's, it's just not the way their brains work. They, screen addiction is a little bit of a one way street. So Nate, um, in New York, we might have a, uh, you might have a poker player determining policy, a poker player and a data guy. Uh, is it true that Andrew Yang is the favorite to to be mayor of New York?
1: He's a poker player. I think so. I- yeah. I mean, he also, he, he likes little constituencies, right? So he kind of talks about online poker and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think Yang is the favorite. Um, he's ahead in the polls. Um, historically kind of ahead in the polls at this point is probably going to win, you know, half the time or something like that. Um, you know, I mean, he one thing about like mayoral candidates in New York is that they tend to be like very... Um, Kind of provincial New York, well, maybe not all of them. I mean, like most of the Americans are the kind of provincial New York politicians. And like the weird thing about New York is like the average New Yorker doesn't think that much about like New York politics, necessarily. Like our turnout tends to be very low in like mayoral elections,
0: like low, like low teens or even, even like close to 10, because primary determines everything. Right. So
1: currently, yeah, currently it seems very unlikely that a Republican would win, of New York. So it's basically the primary. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the turnout's quite low. Um, and Yang is someone who appeals to people who, you know, maybe not appeals, but is known with who follow national politics, right? He's kind of got like a, a, a name brand, name recognition, right? And people are like, well, he's only being the polls because of name recognition. Well, that matters in real life <laughs> too, right? Um, if people are like, oh, Yang, he's into math and would be New York City's first Asian American mayor and he kind of seems like a goofy, but kind of regular guy, like, you know, that like appeals to like a decent number of people if a lot of other people are kind of apathetic. Um, And so, you know, um, but he comes across as being very relatable. Now the flip side of that is like people in New York City who like are very into politics might say, well, Yang, I don't trust his experience, right? His position on X and Y, isn't quite land right for me, right, I think he's kind of being hokey by visiting all these like bodegas and stuff like that. But like, you know, I mean, like um, being seen as like a normal guy is a strategy that kind of works pretty well in politics, right? It kind of worked for Joe Biden. It worked in a different way for Donald Trump, right? It worked for Barack Obama in a somewhat different way, right? But being seen as like kind of a relatable guy is like kind of a, a classic political play. I'm not sure how much of that is like Um, his team of advisors versus like just kind of who he is naturally. Um, But yeah, I'm going to be interviewing him for, uh, at the Sloan conference, actually the virtual Sloan conference. So, um, so I'm thinking about like, and I'm going to ask him some tough questions because I'm a New York city resident. Right. And I feel my job as a journalist is to, um, is to, you know, is to grill him on a few things. Um, But I think he's the favorite. Yeah.
2: So Nate, I have a, question for you something i've thought about a bit before and it's like a theory i have that could just be way off but i'm guessing you guys have both heard of know a little bit about like decision fatigue right sure basically you know in your brain when you use your brain more than a certain amount especially in one area maybe you, you uh have a little less bandwidth to focus and i think if you look at someone now compared to the average person say 50 years ago you're receiving more information, you're using your brain more, um, and you're probably getting a lot more headlines and stuff and less substance. And I suspect that the power of like memes or something like that is basically trending up and up politically and the power (laughs) of, that basically whoever the kind of political experts thought was the better candidate, three months out in 1970 was probably more likely to win because people would get to the same conclusion they did more often because they would think about it more. And now I think there might be less kind of mental space that each person's giving uh, to those decisions in a lot of cases, especially when they don't think it matters that much. And something like a New York City mayoral election I think might be the kind of case that a lot of constituents are like, okay, this doesn't matter that much. Um, whether that's true or not, I'm saying that might just be their belief and they might not give it as much space as someone 50 years ago would have.
1: I think there is something to that. I mean, I think it's also like, it used to be that like political journalists or just journalists in general was kind of seen as a working class profession, right? Um, And kind of collect people from different parts of the society. And now it's kind of, although it still often pays, frankly, like working class wages, Overwhelmingly, people our journalists are like college educated, um, usually from very elite schools and live in big cities and have networks of other kind of highly educated people. And like and that influences things quite a lot. Right. Like the average like political journalist, all their friends were voting for like Elizabeth Warren. And they might not know any kind of Joe Biden voters personally. Um, but yet yeah, Joe Biden voters were largely college or not college educated older black or Hispanic a lot of the time, right? I mean, he won by a fairly big margin in the primary. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think like kind of like reporters are kind of more detached from um, from the average person and at the same time that education's become a better predictor of like um, of success, right? And I think in particular, like like reporters understand that they don't understand how like Trump voters think, right? So for a Trump voter, they'll go and like do reporting or look at polls or whatever else, right? But reporters think they know how like the average Democrat thinks, and they're actually kind of further removal than than you might think um, between kind of someone who is thinking about politics as a reporter twenty four seven and someone who's a liberal, a Democrat, but you know works as a lawyer or something and and is just trying to like live their life and devotes, like you said, like you know. 20 minutes total of thinking about the New York mayor's race, but enough to vote. Right. And there are a lot of people like that. Um, and I don't think kind of, (laughs) I don't think reporters get that necessarily. I would say
0: there, there are two things you have decision fatigue, and then you have attention span and it's evident that everyone's attention span has been decimated by modern technology. And I think that explains the importance of memes. Um, Decision fatigue, I think of as like the air traffic controller, who's actually quite good at focusing on what they're doing, but on hour eight or nine of the job, they aren't able to perform as effectively. Or like the pilot, who's a great pilot, but he, he, he's typically quite focused, and then at the end of a shift, he's not focused. And
2: Well, I think that's the clearest place to find it, but do you think that means it's not there? I think it still might be there a little bit in this other area and if it's only there a little bit but in a huge segment of the population that can influence elections
0: i guess the deeper question there is is the modern short attention span driven by basically decision fatigue as you call it like we have too much coming in and we're exhausted or is it driven by like the dopamine engine in the brain that's just over overstimulated and we're just pressing that we're just like little rats pressing that lever trying to get some more dopamine, it it seems like the evidence suggests it's more driven by the dopamine pathway. And and that has kept our attention spans extremely short and leads to the importance of memes.
2: My guess is it's both and that it's the dopamine one more like you're saying. But I think that that dopamine pathway part is something that political science and stuff has a little bit of an idea of, right? Okay, who is got more clicks, who's got more followers, this kind of like both sides can compete on the messaging there a bit. But I think this idea of are people taking as deep a dive as they used to, um, which I suspect in, in something like a presidential race, I think they might be taking almost as deep a dive as they used to. But in a lot of like local you know, elections and stuff, I think people might be doing that a lot less. I'm not sure, it's just my guess.
0: Well, for sure, they're do- doing it a lot less. I can say because um, when Rod's wife was running for city council and I was helping out with the campaign, you would actually chat with the voters and you would realize how little they knew about the candidates. It was quite quite disconcerting, um, especially because Rod's wife would have won any election where people cared d- deeply and, and, and really examined it. But... But yeah, what the actual voter behavior, it seemed to me, was uh, driven by endorsements a lot of the time, like, or the last person that that the voter talked with.
1: Or like, if you're not spending much time on something, you're like, okay, the New York Times endorsed her opponent, and I am a, you know, in Manhattan, I'm a liberal, I read the New York Times dutifully, right? I'm going to go with the New York Times, I have a good reason not to, so those endorsements are, are like... Very powerful in kind of low information environments.
0: I noticed that a lot of voters would just carry the paper into the voting booth and just go down the line with endorsements, which Whoa. Well, I mean, yeah. it's, it's the problem is that it's a corruptible process, right? If if people know that, then they can they can game the endorsement uh, procedure. I don't know what that looks like exactly, but presumably it's game gameable like anything else.
2: I've heard one thing which I find interesting and I think is probably true that people on the right in America understand how people on the left think better than people on the left understand how people on the right think. To me, that seems pretty true.
1: I think that's true in the sense of like, people on the right are kind of, I mean, they're not a minority, right? It's kind of, oh, maybe they technically are, but like, you know, 48, 52 or whatever, right? But like, I think they're used to like, being kind of seen as outsiders relative to mainstream culture because like pop culture is kind of if it's like the fourth branch of society i mean that is kind of permanently one by the left you know what i mean and so you kind of have to have to i think push back on that a, a little bit more i mean yeah i mean i'm i know i will not get myself in too much trouble on this podcast hopefully but yeah i think like i think increasingly like liberals do not understand when they're being partisan and people on the right also don't understand it, but kind of have like a mildly better instinct for like when they're making a partisan argument versus, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, you might kind be- of see it on some of this like trust the science stuff where like at one point, trust the science meant don't wear masks, <laughs> right? um at one point trust science but no we can't open schools and so i mean that's just the kind of thing where like actually like first of all this isn't science this is public policy which should be informed by science we would hope right but like well, that kind of like sloganeering i think is something that is is usually a a bad sign but i think it's also kind of relatively recent right i mean it's like a little bit like the the trump thing on covid where like trump was so terrible about covid that like it kind of rationalized everyone else being kind of lazy and terrible too, even if they weren't as terrible <laughs> or if their intentions were certainly much better, right? Or they were trying harder. All those things are important. But like, um, but, you know, I think all lot of liberals are like, well, Trump was so uniquely terrible, which, you know, I don't know if I would. I mean, I think the stuff that happened around January 6th or whatever, right, was terrifying in many things about his presidency, right? But it stopped people's self-critique, <laughs> a little bit in some sense. Um, and if people aren't self-critical, then um, then they'll make worse decisions. And also decision fatigue is a thing too. I mean, like just the fact that like, I mean, um, I was like, I am covering politics for a living, at least is one of the major things that I do, right? I mean, just like the fact that the constant news that Trump would create and the waking up at 6 a.m. he's tweeted something totally outlandish and it dictates the news cycle for the day and then there's like three huge news stories every day right like that creates a huge amount of um decision fatigue i think for anyone not just people who are covering politics right and then kind of um in the pandemic we're like now i have to fucking think about if i want to go to dinner you know i want to go outdoors this place outdoors enough it's kind of in a tent or something like that and how do i feel about inviting my friend maybe you know Someone's been vaccinated. Someone hasn't been, right? And it just like, yeah, it just kind of becomes exhausting after a period of time.
0: I have a question about uh, state and local government politics. I think one of the the subtle things that has happened during COVID is that we we've had a blending of federal, state, local government finance. Like for a long time, states and and local governments sort of stood on their own for budgetary matters occasionally there would be a federal bailout but in COVID we've had a situation where state and local governments are often running at a uh, extreme deficit and the federal government has bailed out state and local governments but there's the possibility that it will um, be an ongoing pro there will be demand for it to be ongoing and it might sort of alter the relationship of the federal government with the states and then um as it relates to say the three of us i'm in i've been in miami for a long while you guys are well tom you're currently in california not not full-time in california and nate you're in new york um it's interesting that we have this sort of antiquated uh, residence system for the states where um, if you're there over six months, you're a resident. If you're there three months, you're not a resident. And you have Florida basically uh, uh, free riding on the states of New York and California and having everyone come to Florida and decimate the tax base in in california and new york um it seems like a a long-term issue how 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 might you see that playing out nate i mean i i was surprised because i did a, a fundraising chat with andrew yang recently and i haven't been to new york in 18 months the picture that he was painting was quite quite dire i was a bit surprised and it was Actually, it was not really Andrew Yang painting the picture. It was the other people on the call asking questions. Like, it was evident that they thought New York was in a troubled state.
1: I mean, as someone who's in New York, I kind of. Well, I'm not thinking about the fiscal policy, right? I mean, in terms of like, I mean, New York, if you have not been in New York in 18 months, then like New York is much livelier than you would think, right? People are not super paranoid, right? All the like outdoor dining setups give the city a lot of life, right? And this is more recent, right? people in Central Park and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the fiscal policy, I mean, I don't know, right? You have people moving, um, you know, you certainly are going to have a reduction in people working at offices in Midtown, whether that's semi-permanent or very permanent or goes are short-term, I don't know, right? Um, you have people moving out of the city into the suburbs, um so, I'm sorry, some of which are not, by the way, located in New York State. So yeah, it's going to be a problem. I think one thing you might also see is that, uh, like, as um, as work from home becomes more acceptable um, for more kind of people in high income professions, you'll see people who are more nomadic, right? You have a place in Miami, and you have a place if you're wealthy in New York City, and of course you're going to be in the Miami place, you know, 190 days a year, so you're in the New York place less than 183 or whatever it is, and like. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I think this could be an issue for sure. Um, Like, which places are winners and losers of, like, these shifts? Like, in the long run, I don't know. I mean, I think in the long run, um, New York will be fine because we have a lot of different industries, and it's always been kind of a city where people kind of self-select to live, right? I'd worry, like, a bit more about, like, a city like um, Seattle, which is a nice place to live, but it's kind of cold and rainy and, like, you know, if you didn't have those couple of major companies there, it would not be the economy that is. Um, but but I don't know. I mean, but also the, you know, the various like bailout packages were were quite generous, I think. And so you haven't had as many budgetary problems as people were necessarily afraid of. Um, but, you know, could the New York City have problems? Potentially, sure. Were they trying to claw it back by like having people who... Um, you know, maybe now if my company is based in New York, even if I'm living outside of New York, then you're gonna try to tax me, right? Maybe now if I'm in New York for any number of days of the year, then, which is probably how it should be, you know what I mean? I mean, there shouldn't be some like magic threshold that 180, 384 days. Um, It should be kind of a sliding scale probably anyway. I mean, I've had to pay taxes in California some years where I was going there enough for work where like they do actually do that. They do make you pay taxes if you're there more than like 14 days a year for work-related purpose, I think actually. So yeah.
0: My long-term plan is after Amelia and Bear graduate high school, I'm going to talk them into relocating to Tokyo.
2: Oh shit. Oh,
1: Tokyo is fantastic. We've been to Tokyo together.
0: Tom, when Nate and I were in Tokyo, John Yuanda took us out and that was our best night of the whole trip.
2: Yeah, I want to go go to Tokyo, have John Yawanda take me around. I think he knows all spots.
0: Bear really wants to go to Japan because Nintendo world was scheduled to open just before COVID hit and they never did the grand opening. I, I think I'm pretty sure they still haven't opened it, but Nintendo world is supposed to be like Disney times 10 and all, all Nintendo bear really wants to go. So Tom, do you see yourself uh, staying in the States for the rest of the calendar year?
2: not trying to predict what's going to happen for the rest of this calendar year. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a weird world we're living in right now. So I'll be here for the near future and we'll see you after that. But
0: yeah, Tom, Tom is different than most poker players because most poker players when they, when they venture outside their sphere, they're like everyone else in that they demonstrate extreme overconfidence. Tom really doesn't have overconfidence outside his sphere. Is it, when you say that it's probably the most persistent behavioral anomaly that, that almost everyone demonstrates extreme overconfidence. I think it's probably the most interesting part of financial markets, at least when you, when you get into those chapters.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's like kind of, I mean, even being cold that they're overconfident people kind of remain, <laughs> Overconfident. It's kind of very hard to very hard to coax out of people. Um, I'm sure that I have like um, a lot of it too. Um, you know, one good thing about poker is you kind of, well, you don't really actually hit the long run of the poker that fast at all. I don't know. I mean, that kind of one question to explore too is like how many people are actually really making a good living over the long term from just their poker winnings and losings. Right. Is that like a hundred people in the world, a thousand, 10,000? I don't know. It's not, it's not that many. Will you get so much regime change?
2: 2011. Of course. Yeah. It was a lot back then. Now it's, I'm sure it's gotten down, but it, I would still take the over on 10,000, I think probably, probably by a lot of
0: on 10,000 people. Yeah. Currently I mean, making, yeah. making their living in, in poker.
1: Yeah, defined as sustainable their expected value is like at least at the median income of their country, and well, they're, they're not-, not
2: that far off, kind of thing. Yeah,
1: I would take the under on on that one personally, but
2: I mean, there's a lot of those Asian countries that have just a bunch of live games running all the time.
1: You know,
2: yeah, like Macal, yeah, Philippines like. I don't know. I mean, I know there was like, I never went there, but there was that Sihanoukville in Cambodia. There's like, I mean, there's a bunch of these in Singapore, you know, there's just a lot of people, those places. And then there's online in a lot of different places. I mean, I think over 10,000.
1: Have you been playing much time apart from high stakes
2: poker? No, I haven't played live since then.
0: So Nate for the book, how much of it will be field research? Can we expect that you'll be at the world series of poker this year?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, because like, A, just like, I do enjoy playing poker. But yeah, I mean, I want to like, I want to like, be on the scene. I want to talk to people. I mean, um, there are lots of people to talk to in Vegas. Um, So yeah, I mean, even in like a, even like a normal non-book year, right? Like I kind of really missed, um, I'd start to actually like play more live poker, like two and three years ago. It's something I kind of had not been in my life for a while. I'm like, actually, it's kind of fun to like, go to like, Six tournaments a year. Try to take it seriously, but yeah. So I'm excited to go to um, the World because Now is going to be in September through November. Um, probably going to hit up the next. Uh, you, have,
2: you know,
1: try, maybe. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you should come to the next one we have. Yeah.
1: Where is it? It's in Macau, or
2: unsure for now. But
1: no, I will. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't play in you that Usually, it's a few places:
2: but... some some Macau, some Jeju. I mean, Macau. We actually never have one yet we're gonna have no jeju montenegro london but i'll let you know
1: um i'm going to the wpt hard rock seminole i guess later this month i'll be fully vaccinated by the time that happens so i'll feel not super guilty about playing live poker the first time in a year so it'll be good what else
0: will be part of the field research program
1: um i mean i have some like really weird esoteric things I want to do. Like I want to study people who take like extreme risks, like people who are like um, doing like extreme, like rock climbing and stuff like that. I do not think I'm going to go like mountain climbing or rock climbing with them, but like that's something where I'm just kind of interested in, right? Um, I know there's something like kind of NFT related <laughs> I can do potentially. Um, I need to meet some, um, some DFS, players I tend to be like at least poker players right they're on tv frankly i kind of like have some idea of who the people who are more interesting characters from a book standpoint might be or might have more unique perspectives i might have to hit you up brandon for like who is a dfs player who would actually be interesting for like readers to to meet and maybe you're like an sunday with them or something right
0: yeah empire or awesome Os- awesome is an entertaining cat i think okay he's been ra- he's been rated the top Tournament player for three years.
1: US Open, maybe? I, I hope you're coming this year, Brandon, but I'm gonna probably write um, you know, I think tennis is like one of the better sports for uh for running about in the sports betting chapter. So, you know.
0: I will be there. Excellent. Well, guys, thanks so much. This was a, a really fun podcast. I expect that it will be popular with the viewers. Um, hopefully we can do a round two in a, a year or so.
2: For sure. Yeah, sure.
0: Okay. All right. Later, guys.
2: See you, man. See you guys.